Hello guys and welcome back to another episode of the Political Incorrectors Podcast. I'm your host Eric. And I'm your host Luke. And we're delighted to be back with another episode. A lot has happened since the last uh, episode that we recorded. Lots of things have gone on between protests, anti-lockdown protests, all the way to articles being released uh, about the nature of political parties and down to the fact that a lot of women within our society have spoke up about a lot of the issues that they face. And all of these topics are more ones that we're going to be addressing within this episode. So I can't wait to get Sukrad and Luke. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be good. Um, so I suppose um, thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode, by the way. It's great to be back. Um, but I guess we can just jump straight into it with, I think, one of the biggest stories that w- since we recorded the last episode, I think it happened maybe the week after we recorded the last episode, was this massive riot <laughs> in Dublin. And I think people people started to call it a protest, but I don't think it's fair to call it a protest because it was it was like a rampaging riot on the streets of Dublin, an anti-lockdown, anti-mask, I think anti-vaccine riot. Hundreds of people, mostly men, um, descended on Grafton Street and caused a load of trouble, uh, calling for an end to lockdown. And and during the process, even there was a, a guard had a, a firework shot into his face, um, and I think it was just disgraceful. It was horrible to see. Um, and it's not something, to be honest, that I ever thought I'd see um, come from come from it, it be in Ireland, like on the streets of Dublin on Grafton Street. That you know, we kind of walk down every time you visit Dublin. It was insane. Yeah, it, it was quite appalling. Uh, look, it was so shocking to see people just have just express wanton disregard for the law, uh, for order, and you know the fact that they attacked on Garda Shea who were there to protect those who were present at the riot, I'm sure, is the most disheartening thing of, of all. Uh, and the fact that this is not only, uh, this did not only occur in Dublin as a singular event, it was coupled with another similar uh, uh, kind of riot slash protest in Cork also. And uh, so it, it was just quite disheartening to see people go out and and do this at this time when we as a nation are trying to acknowledge the fact that we're dealing with a pandemic that we all have to come together to fight by following the guidelines passed down by the government. But I think, you know, I'd like for us to have a chat about the, the public reaction to the um, to the protests, especially on, 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 on social media. Uh, you know, I, I think from speaking to ordinary people that I spoke to, uh, everyone was completely baffled by the fact that anyone would go out and do this on the streets of Dublin uh, and on Cork as well, especially at this time. But it seemed like on Twitter, uh, partly because of a reaction from so an RTE representative who characterized the protest as one which encompassed both the far left and the far right, um, a lot of people weren't very ha- happy with the semantics and the terminology that was used to, t- to kind of refer to the protest by this RT representative. So what do you think about, you know, not only the fact that, you know, the representative used those terms, but the, the, also the fact that people were so hung up with how he expressed who was present at the protest also? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Firstly, I think like everyone sort of immediately pushed to call everyone present at those riots as like a a fascist or a far right person um, and put a label on them immediately and yes i think it was absolutely awful for them to do it but i think as well like trying to understand it on like a human level firstly um i think people were frustrated angry um feeling completely isolated in lockdown uh, and that anger built up inside people and i think maybe the fact that these like not everyone present on those streets was a fascist or a member of some sort of far right organization um and or far left as the as you stated there 
Um, but I think that that's the problem. You know, people immediately tried to put political labels on it. Um, and, you know, the Garda commissioner came out. That's where that RT reporter got the story. Uh, in the initial press conference, the Garda commissioner came out and said that, you know, there was people on the far left and the far right involved in these protests. Now, I don't think he had any evidence to prove either way at that point in the investigation. But I think on Twitter and on social media, there was absolute outrage that the Garda commissioner would dare say that there was members of the far left involved in the protest. And what Apec- and the Minister for Justice subsequently came out and said something similar. And I think what became the narrative among sort of more left-wing people was anger at the fact that the establishment and the government would try and dare suggest that far left people were involved, rather than the actual issue that's at hand with uh, angry people uh, protesting and, and rioting on the streets of Dublin. Uh, and I'm not sure that gets to the heart of the issue, you know, to try and to start an argument over, you know, far left, far right, fair enough, it's a, it's a conversation that needs to be had, but it doesn't get to the heart of the issue. And that's people causing damage uh, and, and hurt on the streets of Dublin and Cork. Absolutely, Luke. And I also fear that the vulnerable people who are present at the protests, who don't know anything about political terminology, who don't care for far left or far right, but who simply felt like they were genuinely wrong by the government and did the wrong thing to go out, go out and protest. I feel like once you politically characterize absolutely everyone that was there and don't pay attention to the underlying issues that the far right are speaking to in a populist manner to appeal to the psyche of the vulnerable and those who feel neglected because of the towns we're living in. You know, a lot of good faith people that we might be able to win in and bring away from those like treacherous and regressive ideas, we're losing because once you politically characterize them and just throw them and alienate alienate them in in the box of being in the alt-right you know you're 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 coupling them with people who are genuinely in the alt-right and you're making them susceptible to the ideas that that suck people in down a rabbit hole of aggressiveness and backwardsness but what i think we should be doing is having an earnest discussion about how the alt-right as you said were involved in the protest but also talking about the fact that the protest in itself was very bad and something that our nation should feel appalled about, but also that there were some vulnerable people. And I think this is like, you know, it's it, it's quite apparent, generally speaking, when it comes to conspiracy theories. There's always people who are in the middle, who are vulnerable, who aren't sure, and who are appealed to with like bad ideas, and they're sucked into, again, that rabbit hole. So those are the people that I fear for the most, because instead of politically characterizing them when they don't know a thing about politics, we should be trying to appeal to them and win them over with good ideas and convince them out of the ways of the, of the alt-right, or at least ideas that are synonymous with alt-right ways of thinking in regards to COVID-19. Definitely, yeah. And I think, like, without a doubt, it was far-right, alt-right individuals who organised these protests and orchestrated the protests. Uh, We could probably name them, but I don't think we want to do them justice by naming them. You know, these little parties that have popped up across the country uh, and spread across the internet in recent years. Uh, And yes, they're involved, and yes, they're absolutely awful people. But like you said, I don't think it fixes the problem to, to describe everyone at the protests as some sort of extremist or radical Maybe their views are extreme and radical, but I think it doesn't get at the heart of the issue that they're being radicalized by these individuals with very nefarious um, and malevolent intentions. Um, and it's happening through through Facebook, through the Internet, uh, through WhatsApp, you know, forwarded messages even. Um, and as you said, they're, they're vulnerable people who maybe don't have the skills needed to determine what's factual and what's what's incorrect. And I think that kind of gets to, to the issue we wanted to talk about as well, is this kind of 
importation of conspiracy theories of sort of culture wars between uh, the establishment and outsiders and conservatives and progressives and somehow it's it's become completely polarized where there's where you're either evil or you're good um depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on you know and uh, i think that there are echoes of and i don't want to make like a kind of joint comparison because the situations are quite different but there are echoes to the the protests or the riots in the streets of dublin and the the capitol hill insurrection that happened in washington a, a few weeks ago in that a lot of the people involved in those riots were people who were manipulated online uh, and fell down the rabbit hole rabbit hole as you said of believing in QAnon, for example some sort of crazy conspiracy theory about the establishment being uh, like some sort of uh, like cult who had very strange uh, practices when they came to children uh, and there was people present at the protests in Dublin who believed that for example one situation was that RTE presenters I think used the the skin cells of dead children to look young and buried their bodies under the the, the children's hospital that's currently under construction you know this stuff that doesn't make any logical sense but people believe because of stuff they see on the internet and that's really scary yeah it really is and um, I, I think you know our de- de- predominantly our focus should be challenging those ideas publicly so everyone can see how illogical and backwards they are uh, so that those who follow those ideas can immediately be, be called out for the fact that they are aware that it's wrong you know I think education is quite important and we shouldn't neglect our duty to try and again just debunk these ideas publicly and educate those who might be susceptible to them for whatever vulnerable related reasons that they might have to want to fall down that rabbit hole. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the harder task to do. You know, it's, it's hard not to resort to political in-groups and to kind of resort to like natural, conventional political ways of thinking that you would and point the finger and, and kind of demonize. Uh, but I think we need to choose the harder route and see what we can do to cater to these people because conspiracy theories have existed for a long time. You mentioned QAnon. There are many, many other conspiracy groups. Even with COVID-19, there are sub-conspiracy groups. And one is the famous 5G group who think that COVID-19 was brought about by 5G, which of course was imposed by the government. And when you ask them which government did it, they're not able to answer the question. So, you know, it, it's all about challenging these ideas and pointing them out as illogical ones. But look, you also, also mentioned the culture wars there. And I think we can nicely segue from this point into the next point about the culture wars in America, most notably, and how they have like a, a massive impact on uh, Irish young people in particular. You know, I think, you know, the, the pro- previous generation here in Ireland, although ideology, of course, was always inherent in politics, and there was a more so conservative ethos to the state for a while, um, political ideology uh, in its literal term and in terms of its literal definition, I think is something that a lot of younger people who are politically inclined are upholding as a result of the influence of the American culture wars in America. I think the rise occurred maybe four years ago uh, where we saw very famous right-wing figures in America and very famous left-wing figures in America go at it on social media. And because we live in the age of social media, the first time a lot of Irish young people, including myself, that I spoke to have interacted with like political ideas is by seeing these famous figures discuss it and converse about it. And something I think that it, 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 we, we might, it might be good to acknowledge is the fact that a lot of the wrong ideas that emanate from the culture wars that come from very popular right-wing figures, let's say a Ben Shapiro, for example, who you know, says a lot of things uh, which are, are not only controversial, but are just inherently false and maybe quite hateful, and that we're able to say now, uh, but when 
people first interact with these ideas, they might see them as something that is true. And the way it's presented and packaged by these culture war figures might kind of draw a lot of young people into believing in them. A lot of Irish young people too, because this is what they interact with before they interact with anything here in Ireland. So I think I wanted to ask the question, in terms of Irish young people and these ideas, wrong and right from the culture wars, how big of an influence do you think they're having on the way we think and interact with ideology? Yeah, I think it is a massive issue. And I suppose, you know, we, we spoke about this before, even personally. And I suppose when I first got interested in politics, for example, even, and you know, you go on YouTube and you start looking at sort of like political speeches and stuff. And then you might notice a, a video from Ben Shapiro or Alex Jones or some sort of um, American far right, um, right wing conservative pundit. Um, and you might click into it, find it interesting. And bit by bit, you kind of fall down a rabbit hole. And I remember I fell down a rabbit hole of watching these these people and Look, I think they leave you with very sort of polarized views of politics of like you're either conservative or you're progressive and that's it. Um, and that maybe might be more relevant to American culture and politics because it's a two party system. But when you import it into somewhere like Ireland and, you know, you're when it's two ideologies, conservative, you're conservative or you're progressive. It doesn't work in our political system because we have so many different parties and really like we're not like we're not polarized to the extent that America is in that we have, you know, parties from the center to the left more so than you know the left to the right you know um and it, it, it has left a very ideological sort of i think generation it's particularly our generation uh, and you just have to look at twitter to see that you know people who hate each other because of where they perceive themselves to lie on the political spectrum um and it's that polarization that i think is the biggest issue and we're seeing it across europe as well um and i have to wonder like it's definitely been imported from america from these like conservative pundits who make lots of money out of um, sort of pushing this out in, in, on the internet and getting it in the algorithm, so people like me and you see it on YouTube. Um, but I, I just don't think it even makes sense in the European context, um, and I worry about the effects it has. And as, as I sort of pointed to there, I think we have seen the effects already across Europe with with Brexit, but also elections in in France and Italy with you know these far right figures getting on coming on the scene and, and young people, uh, even a minority getting behind them because of the how the internet's used to peddle this this polarization so it's it's uh it is again like the riots it's scary to see this happening in in europe and in ireland yeah it, it's quite worrying um and i think you know especially when it comes to young people interacting with them because of course young people are the future not only of politics but of the nations that they're within so i think once we again import these ideas uh, and just copy and paste them uh, to be to be literal upon our own political scene without kind of molding and shaping it because you can be inspired by ideas across the world and positive ideas too in northern ireland you know the likes of john hume took inspiration from the civil rights movement within the united states of america and they sang a lot of the songs and they protested in similar ways that's positive inspiration that can occur and politically speaking ideologically speaking you can be inspired in a positive way by figures in America or anywhere uh, in the global political scene. But to import culture war ideas and just try and apply them rigidly without trying to mold it and shape it to take into account the idiosyncrasy of the Irish system or the uniqueness of the system here, it can be quite problematic and it can produce a lot of the bitter rivalries that we see in America, which aren't good for anyone. Um, and, and to address you know, the likes of the Alex Joneses and Ben Shapiros, again, even with myself and a lot of other people I spoke to, this was the first introduction to the culture war and, and these ideas. And, you know, I think, I guess this is somewhat of a corollary point, but, you know, 
a lot of young people, because of the bitter hatred they have for one another due to ideological difference, might see someone who uh, is firstly being introduced to these ideas and might uphold what some might see as the wrong ideas and try to just maybe neglect them or, again, similar to those who were present at the protests that were vulnerable, alienate them and not allow them to grow past that phase, as I have and as you have and many other young people have. I, I fear for that as well. I think when we take these ideas too seriously, as is done within the culture wars in America, we won't leave a space for people to grow past these phases of thinking in ways that we might not agree with and try and embrace more modern and p progressive uh, ways of thinking in line with the, the nature of Irish politics. So... This is definitely a worry that I have to, um, but hopefully going forward, and, and it's going to be interesting in terms of the impact it has on politics. As we said in the last episode, look, Luke, up until now, uh, your political decisions have very much been made in response to the issues. A lot of the decisions have been wrong. A lot of them have been correct. And going forward, if decisions are merely ideological, as they are in America, where you have like congressmen and, and women and senators making decisions just because of dogma and not because of the real world impact of those decisions. It's going to be interesting if we get to that point in Ireland and if we do, how that will impact things here in Ireland. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I do want to pick up on a point you kind of made at the, at the start of your of what you said there about, you know, kind of dialogue and, you know, respect for the people's opinions. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of and it comes into cancel culture again, which is a discussion for another day. But I think, you know, when you encounter someone who has these views and maybe has, you know, been introduced to politics through Ben Shapiro or, or things like this and have very warped views on feminism or on trans rights, for example, the the response, I think a lot of the time is to immediately cancel them and shut them down, which is fair because I think those views are absolutely reprehensible and they're they're wrong. But does that fix the issue? Like if you cancel someone and tell them your views are wrong, you're a conservative, you're you hate women, you hate, you know, anyone who's a bit different. Um, that, that's an emotional response and, you know, maybe it's justified. But what does it do to the person? I, th I do think it further radicalizes them and sort of it, it, it works for Ben Shapiro and Alex Jones because they feel it turns them into a victim. You know, mostly straight white men turns them into victims uh, because they feel that their views and their position in society is under threat. Um, and I think it comes to the wider, you know, sort of uh, political team of discussion and just conversations and you know you know having these discussions with people civilized discussions you might disagree but discuss it and you know share your views and try and tell people when they are wrong but don't don't cancel them because we've seen that in irish politics as well which kind of leads us on to our next topic but you know the sort of like can we imagine dialogue with Sinn Féin or Fine Gael in any any time soon you know it's hard to see and maybe that's an example of how this has been implemented here but I do think the the point for me on this culture wars topic is is dialogue, um, and trying to see past the the anger and the emotion and having a discussion with people because that's where I think I, I fear that it's being lost in politics, uh, compromise and discussion which is so vital. Um, mm. But yeah. Well, well, speaking of political culture wars, I think it's only right for us to get on to our next topic uh, about an, a very infamous or notorious article that was recently published by Leo Varadkar, I think it was an interview, uh, and in the article he made, in the eyes of some, controversial claims that Fine Gael was not a conservative party. And of course, in what, what we might be able to call the Irish version of the culture wars, the other side uh, point the finger at Fine Gael and might associate words like conservatism and elitism to the party. Well, here in the article, Varadkar attempts to try and belittle those claims uh, and talk about how that's not true. So shall we shall we get into it? Yeah, definitely. So you kind of you kind of explained it quite well there. It was in the Irish Times, and it was a quote from an event he spoke at. It was a, a women in politics event, 
uh, for Fine Gael, and it was reported in the in the Irish Times. And I think, as he said, he, he stated that there's a misconception that Fine Gael is a conservative party in Ireland, um, but that they played a crucial role in you know bringing about equality, and that they are a, a socially liberal party. And he pointed to things like, you know, through the party's history, abolishing illegitimacy, um, removing the constitutional ban on divorce, uh, marriage equality, uh, abolishing the Eighth Amendment. They were in government when these things happened. And I suppose his point is that how are we uh, a conservative party if we stood by and supported these things, which is probably a fair point. Uh, But he also acknowledged as well that, you know, Fine Gael has been in government in times when this country was very socially conservative and he did acknowledge that you know the party that he's a, the leader of um, stood over things like the Magdalene Laundries and the mother and baby homes so I think you know when that article went out and it was shared on, on Twitter it was very it was ratioed like um, you know Irish left Twitter absolutely you know they, they had a field day with it because they called Fine Gael out and you know I think a lot of people have a perception that as you said Fine Gael is this very like right wing conservative party which was, um, you know, completely refuting the point that Leo Varadkar made, which is very interesting. I think that it's 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 a interesting topic of discussion because it's it's much more nuanced than both sides uh, mentioned. I think. Yeah, I think it was quite prov- provocative in the sense that Varadkar not only, uh, you know, not not only tried to attribute attribute these political feats of abolishing, you know, the ban on divorce and bringing about the Eighth Amendment of and, and, and marriage equality. He not only tried to say that Fine Gael brought those things about and brought them into fruition, but he also claimed very prov- provocatively that the left in Ireland had nothing to do with it and that it was Fine Gael leading the fight in this regard. And I guess a lot of the people who might have some criticisms about the article would claim that it was left-wing activists on the streets uh, you know, protesting and campaigning for this to be brought about, whilst many within Fine Gael didn't necessarily feel the push and the urge to bring this about. But I think when it comes to you know, acknowledging those feats, it's very important for us to allocate responsibility for the introduction of these wins like accordingly. Like, you know, these activists, I think, played a predominant role, a huge role when it came to convincing uh, the government that it was the right time to do this, or at least that these things should happen just for the sake of it, because they're, the good, they're good things and they're the right thing to do. But also, Fine Gael, you know, did have a role in bringing it about. Uh, and I think it, him, I, I, I think I'm very against political parties, despite where they are in the political spectrum, taking credit for the big things that occur. Because I think a lot of the things he named that Fine Gael did, which were good, which Fine Gael were involved, with, involved in, were more so wins for the Irish state. Because they, they, I don't think any party would have advocated for these things, these issues like the ban on divorce and you know the prohibition, uh, sorry, uh, the Eighth Amendment, getting rid of the Eighth Amendment and introducing marriage equality in the 1950s because the moral climate within Ireland would not have permitted it. So I think the fact that we as a nation got to a point where it was the politically right thing and the politically profitable thing to bring these things about is a good thing. But that's not to say that a lot of Fine Gael TDs didn't play a frontline role in the campaigns because they, they did. They were out on the streets protesting and campaigning for these things also. So yeah, I think it's quite interesting. And I do I guess I respect the fact that he conceded that Fine Gael were involved in maintaining the formerly socially conservative spirit of Ireland, which unfortunately permitted atrocities like the Magdalene Laundries and the mother and baby homes. I, I, you know, I, I definitely appreciated the fact that he acknowledged that. Uh, and I think the fact that he talks about the progress Fine Gael has not been involved in maybe insinuates that Fine Gael has progressed as a party. Um, but he did concede in the article also that 
we thought Fine Gael was a centre-right party. And in terms of my personal opinion, I think socially speaking, Fine Gael probably could, could be like positioned on the left. I think they have a lot of figures who are involved in the party that will be more progressive in, in, in the way that they think. But that's not to, de- to deny the fact that there are some conservative members of Fine Gael also. And especially with a lot of the youth members, I can I kind of get a conservative vibe from them, which is completely fine, of course. But then economically speaking, I think Fine Gael are, are more so li- liberal or liberal uh, neoclassical when it comes to economics they're definitely not left in that regard as for how i see the party but um yeah it, it gives rise to a very interesting discussion yeah uh, look i really agree with your point about um you know grassroots activists and the point that i know he kind of in his quote i think he kind of suggested that you know the left were annoyed that they weren't involved in the social change that finnegale did bring about and i do push back against that because like if it wasn't for the labor party or the green party in a number of those things um they mightn't have been on the agenda at all. Um, and if it wasn't for the grassroots campaigns and people on the streets uh, who brought this these issues to national attention, would they have happened at all? It's hard to see. Um, but I do think, like, you know, there is this perception that Fine Gael, and you touched on this, that they're a, a kind of, and the extreme is that they're far right. In some instances, they're somehow fascist, um, which I, I find really odd. Um, this ultra-conservative party that hate poor people. This is the extreme narrative that we can encounter a lot, especially on Twitter and online. And, you know, there's a discussion about whether that's uh, that's representative of real life or not. But um, I find that really interesting because I don't think they are a conservative party. Yes, they are definitely, you know, more right-wing or centre-right when it comes to economics. And... Um, but I do think they're a party of the centre, you know. They've said this, they describe themselves as a party of the centre. And I think with Fine Gael, you know, there are some people who are conservative, but at the same time, there's probably an equal amount of people who are progressive. Um, and I think there's a lot of, like, it's quite disingenuous, I think, to label the party as completely conservative or as completely right-wing. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I wish that would change because then I think we can see a, a better political environment in Ireland where people can work together. Because this comes back to our culture wars uh, topic. If you label Fine Gael as conservative all the time, which is, which, you know, just isn't true, um, when are we going to get a situation where people can work together, where parties of the left can work with Fine Gael to better this country and better our society? It's not going to happen. And I think we need to acknowledge that, you know, there are plenty of people in Fine Gael who want a better society, who aren't ultra-conservative, who do care about social progress. Um, and I think that the one thing that really irritated me that came out of this whole situation and of this article on Twitter in particular was um, people trying to labor, label Leo Varadkar somehow homophobic, which is what happened. And this, I think this points to how disingenuous this conversation could become. Um, because a video went out, which has went out a lot on, on Twitter, of Leo Varadkar speak, speaking, I think, in 2009. And he spoke against um, uh, same-sex couples adopting children. Um, which was a topic of discussion at the time, and he spoke against it. Um, that's being used to somehow describe him as homophobic, for example, even though you know he came out publicly in 2015 during the marriage equality referendum, um, and he advocated for that strongly, which was introduced in law by Fine Gael. Um, and as well as that, he's in a he's in a same-sex relationship with his long-term partner. Um, but then we have people who try to label him as homophobic. I think that shows how disingenuous the conversation could become. Um, and I think you know. I just think the, the conversation needs to change, to be honest, because I think the this dialogue, this the the way we polarize politics, it's it's just toxic. I think, uh, and we, the sooner we get over it, the better, because I think we can have real discussions about society then. Yeah, I, I think uh, that was very well put. Look, Luke, I think um, uh, you definitely appeal to the beauty of common ground and and compromise and people coming together to 
do away with political caricatures and make it easy to demonize your political rivals, um, but instead coming together to, to realize a common objective that you have as a young person involved in politics or a politician, which is to enhance Ireland. If you're a good faith politician, of course, uh, and I think everyone needs to embrace this across the political spectrum. Those who caricature parties like Fine Gael need to do it too. Uh, and of course, members in all parties, like I, I guess Var- Leo Varadkar saying in the tweet, kind of provoking the left. Uh, I think that was the only one of the major parts of the article that dismayed me and, uh, and that it didn't necessarily favor because uh, I, it, it does speak to the kind of provocative culture wars that we're speaking to also. So we need everyone to neglect these ways of thinking and think about compromise and common ground. Uh, but I guess, you know, we kind of touched on Varadkar, so we might as well stay on him because he's quite a, a polarizing figure, Luke. Um, you know, some would call him homophobic. Uh, others would kind of relish in the fact that he was the first gay Taoiseach in Ireland, you know, uh, you know and the fact that he, 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 he comes from, he's of Indian descent also, uh, from his father's uh, lineage. You know, some would call him ultra-conservative and elitist, you know, others would say that he's quite progressive in his way of thinking. Not very progressive, but progressive in the generic sense. Um, and, and it's very hard because I think he's a very, again, polarizing figure. And so many people interpret him as a political figure in many different ways. Uh, I guess the way I, I see him is, is someone who, like the homophobic, homophobic line, for example, I do think that's so gen- disingenuous, not only considering the fact that he comes from He's in a homosexual couple, uh, but also because of the fact that when he delivered speeches like the one he did in the past, where he called, uh, well, he basically claimed that, you know, gay people, gay couples should not have the right to have children. At that time, he wasn't outwardly homosexual uh, in terms of his sexuality. He didn't embrace it publicly. And he may have been dealing with a lot of conflicting thoughts that some people do at that time when they're scared to embrace themselves. So I think, you know, those lines are, are disingenuous. And I think sometimes people oversimplify the figure again to caricature him and come at him. But in the same breath, I must also say that he's been a part of a, a few bloopers or uh, public displays, which haven't necessarily worked in his favor to debunk the image of an elitist figure. I, I think my, my own, <laughs> the most notable memory for me is the back and forth he had with Sinn Féin, uh, where... I believe it was Barry Ward, a Fine Gael representative, who was in the Shannad, I, I, I believe. And I think a Sinn Féin representative was speaking to him about how, I believe it was something along the lines of him not understanding the experiences of people on the ground and not knowing how they navigate their lives and whatnot. And maybe people from ethnic minorities, I believe she might have said this too. And Barry Ward replied, no, not happily with what she said. And Leo Varadkar shared it. And he said, if you're a white male and middle class, you know, Sinn Féin don't watch you so much for an island for all and you know when I first saw it I thought it was like a meme account I was like is this like a right-wing culture war figure in America Uh, and this may not be representative of who he he truly is but getting across this image definitely does not work in his favor for presenting him as again that modern progressive Taoiseach that many might still see him as and many definitely saw him as when he was first appointed as Taoiseach um, a few years ago yeah, yeah. Look, I agree. I think the especially the narrative that you know Leo Varadkar and Finnegan have taken about Sinn Fein to try and you know use any situation or any attempt to politically bash them or you know to try and discredit them in general. I I don't think it's a good tactic, and it speaks to that. You know, was that tweet, for example, about being a, a middle class white man 
that was probably a bit disingenuous too, or maybe completely disingenuous, because I don't think that's true. I do think there's there's a lot of situations that Leo Varadkar has encountered, that especially with Sinn Féin, that they may have been disingenuous as well. And I think that tweet is a is a prime example of it. You know, trying to say that somehow Sinn Féin don't care about middle class white people. I don't think that's true. Uh, I do think it's disingenuous, and it points to the sort of Fine Gael and Leo Varadkar's approach to to Sinn Féin, which has been very toxic and um, constantly attacking Sinn Féin at any opportunity to politically bash them or to discredit them. And that's not right. You know, I think there's this room in politics to attack your political opponent, opponents, of course, but not all the time. I think that's the narrative that has sort of come through in Shane, Sinn Féin and, and Fine Gael recently, which just isn't, it's not a good look. And again, it's not, we need dialogue in this country and we need people to work together. Um, and that's, it just, it just doesn't work. But we did mention Sinn Féin there, and I suppose it could be interesting to to pick out a Sinn Féin story from recently. And I think we actually sent this interview to each other. I think we both uh, we both encountered it, and it was uh, Owen O'Brien, the party's housing spokesperson, who is um, a very prominent politician in Ireland. I'm sure everyone kind of knows him. The the um, the sort of tagline is that uh, if Owen O'Brien is the minister for housing, he'll get you a gaff, which is what people like to say. But uh, he has become a kind of totemic figure. But this in- interview in particular was a little bit, um, I mean, I could only describe it as dodgy, to be honest. Um, and it kind of brought to light Sinn Féin's policy on immigration uh, and migration. So, yes, uh, the housing spokesperson for Sinn Féin, uh, Mr. Ono Bryn, he was on RT's Saturday RT radio show. So it's one of RT's radio sh- show, shows called Saturday RT Radio, I believe, and he was speaking about immigration. And he was basically talking about the need for having a critical skills list, which outlines the skills that are needed within Ireland, um, which, of course, implies the jobs that need to be filled, uh, I'd guess. Uh, And he spoke about how immigration and those who are let in to the country have to satisfy the, the skills that are not necessarily fulfilled on that critical skills list. This is my interpretation of what he said. So this is not necessarily the most progressive approach when it comes to immigration. And that was a problem that a lot of people had with what he said, because Sinn Féin, of course, positioned themselves as a left-wing party. And this approach to immigration is not an inherently left-wing approach. Uh, and furthermore, in the Sinn Féin manifesto in 2020 for the general election, Sinn Féin didn't necessarily take the most progressive approach with immigration either, Luke. Mm. No, and do you know, I was very, very surprised to see this. So I suppose the, the interview, as you said, was the initial kind of hook. And then, you know, we kind of looked at the manifesto. And there was this tract on immigration in the Sinn Féin manifesto that is just so out of place with what you'd perceive Sinn Féin to put forward when it comes to immigration. And I'll just take a few of the, the key bits from it, right? So, Sinn Féin does not want open borders. We believe that all states must manage migration. Um, goes on to say that um, the immigration system, system should serve the interests of the people of the country, which was very, like, that was, I was very surprised to read that. Uh, and basically goes on to say more or less that, you know, immigration should fill vacancies in, in our in our system when it comes to our health system and other areas of the economy, which um, is just it's it's very strange to see in a progressive party's manifesto, especially a sort of market driven approach to immigration and, you know, only filling gaps in the market or in the healthcare system, for example. That's not a compassionate approach to immigration, I don't think, or an immigration that welcomes people in from other countries where maybe they don't have the best lives. Um, and I was I was so surprised to see that it's not it, it, it's quite off-putting to be honest. Uh, and I, I I haven't read Fine Gael's manifesto on immigration or Fianna Falls, 
But I'd imagine if that if this was stated in, in their manifesto, there'd be a lot of people very angry about Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil's approach to immigration, and, and rightly so, you know. Um, it's it's quite concerning. And, you know, they do have a point about um, kind of capacity um, and, you know, do, do we have the resources to make sure that migrants have good lives in Ireland? That That's a separate point. But to try and pigeon it into uh, employment and, uh, you know, sectors of the economy, it's, it's very strange um, and not what I expected from Sinn Féin at all. Yeah, uh, absolutely, Luke. And in terms of my own personal view on immigration, I think a realistic approach is very important, but also a compassionate approach is important. But that's quite irrelevant to what we're, we're discussing here because Sinn Féin posits themselves as a left-wing party uh, and a left-wing approach to immigration does not necessarily advocate for the things that we saw in the Sinn Féin manifesto. And I guess what is quite concerning is the fact that a few months prior to the manifesto, Sinn Féin actually put out a tweet, I believe it was Mary Lou MacDonald. Uh, it may not have been a tweet, I think it was a speech she was delivering, where she spoke about how you know Ireland understands the struggles of migrants who have emigrated because of our profound hi- history of emigration. And she spoke about how Ireland needs to take a more compassionate uh, and open-minded um, an empathetic approach to emigration in this speech. I actually have an excerpt of the speech here. She says, The Irish people share a common history with those escaping conflict and hunger. We cannot stand by and watch others experience the horrors of the, of the coffin ships. So this directly conflicts with the manifesto. And this was a few months, months prior to the manifesto. And the manifesto was, of course, published prior to the election. So, Squaring all of this together, it definitely puts Sinn Féin in a very peculiar position in terms of their approach generally. Did they change their tune because they thought that it might be good electorally speaking? Was there an element of populism involved there and not the right type? Or did they just change their mind and think that they needed to take a more, I don't know, conservative, uh, not necessarily in the political sense, but conservative in being the, in the being safe sense on immigration? You know, it, it definitely gives rise or conceives a very interesting question in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's just so interesting and surprising, to be honest. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned Mary Lou's tweet there, and you know, that's that's what you'd expect to hear from from Sinn Fein. You know, a sort of compassionate approach to immigration, and you know, we don't want to see people enjoy the coffin ships. Um, but that doesn't match with what we see in their manifesto. And I do wonder that, you know, I, I have to ask the question: Who does that appeal to? You know, you're trying to. At, at one point win over people who believe in a comp- compassionate approach to immigration but at the same time your policy states that maybe you aren't so compassionate when it comes to immigration and that your priority isn't helping people who, who and this might be a bit too harsh but that you know reading that expert it doesn't seem that the priority is helping people in need but rather helping the interests of ireland and where we have labor shortages and that's not it's not the immigration system i believe in of course it, you know there needs to be rules and regulations but the priority shouldn't be labor shortages it should be helping people in need um and that's i'm just quite shocked to be honest uh, when i when i read that to be honest and, and surprised yeah i i guess just to re- refer back to what we said in our last episode you know because it, the Sinn fein base is quite diverse and a lot of people who vote for Sinn fein and believe and are a part of Sinn fein are a part of Sinn fein for different reasons um, it might be very hard for the, the party to try and appease to absolutely everyone who supports the party because some people might do it because they want to see a transition to, let's say, a socialist Ireland. Some people might just be on the left and support Sinn Féin. Others might support, support Sinn Féin because of this drive towards a united Ireland, while some might support Sinn Féin because of things like the hardline approach on immigration and because of nationalistic views which may be seen as problematic by some. So it's going to be interesting going forward to see which of the which of the aesthetics of Sinn Féin the party actually chooses to uphold? Because I think 
we might come to a time where a decision needs to be made um, before too many contradictions arise and people kind of notice that from the party. Maybe I'm being too harsh and critical, but I think it's something that definitely needs to be considered going forward. But I think uh, to kind of leave this, this topic and get to a, a very sad topic, I'd say, you know, uh, on, on, on the point regarding the fact that recently there was, of course, it was documented in England um, that a, a girl called Sarah, a woman called Sarah, Sarah Everard, uh, she was found uh, dead uh, in, in Kent um, and her body was dismembered. And according to stories that came from the Metropolitan Police Station within Kent, um, she was apparently abducted uh, by a police officer that actually worked within the Metropolitan Police and she was assisted by, he was assisted, sorry, by a female assistant uh, and they found her body. And what came subsequently was a kind of wave of so many women, or uh, many women, sorry, on social media speaking about their own experiences and about how this story spoke to them and how scared they feel about the fact that any day they could go out and something similar could occur to them or at least, at the very least, they could be made to feel uncomfortable because of the fact that they're women. And I think an amazing display of solidarity occurred where women were not only speaking about their experiences, but comforting other women who have experienced the same thing. And I like to say, and I'm sure I speak for you, Luke, when I say that it is absolutely paramount for us males to provide a space for women to speak about their experiences when it comes to these things. Because, you know, time and time again, when I have conversations with, you know, women friends, you know, they always speak to me when we talk on this topic of the discomfort that they feel in rooms, being objectified, being sexualized, being made to feel inferior, being made out to be vulnerable, uh, and the fear they feel because of the fact that us males are not necessarily creating a cultural environment that is good for all people of all sexes where we can all feel comfortable. So, you know, I think it's important for us to acknowledge this. Uh, and yes, I, I'll allow you to before we, I'd like for us to get onto the whole not all men kind of facade. <laughs> yeah, well, firstly, like the, the Sarah Everard stories, it's absolutely heartbreaking and infuriating to think that someone who was walking home from work or, you know, walking home in, in you know, it wasn't even that late and was abduct, abducted and, and lost her life. And as you said, you know, what came from this was, was women um, having heard this story, sharing their stories of, of feeling scared of, of being sexually harassed and being sexually abused. And it seems that this is a huge amount of women. And I think, you know, we've seen statistics of women who've experienced um some degree of sexual harassment i think one statistic i saw was 94 percent which is an overwhelming majority um and that's just it's so awful but what about the situation that infuriated me the most was some men's response to say that this is not all men um and the hashtag not all men trended um and i suppose they tried to state that you know they try to remove themselves from the situation i think um which is just it's such a bad response um, and I suppose we do have to call it out. You know, we, we, we need to use our platform to call it out because it's, it's disgraceful. Um, no one's trying to say that, you know, all men are, are do these things or, you know, do these extremes. But I think uh, as men, all of us have a part to play in this situation because I think what, what allows these horrible things to happen and even, you know, on a lower level um, is the sort of system and the, you know, the rhetoric, sexist and misogynist rhetoric that we hear every day that's so prevalent in society. Um, and I think we all need to play a part in calling that out and making sure it doesn't happen. And that means, you know, when we hear our friends uh, or people we, we know say things or do things that we know are inappropriate and are sexist and mis misogynist, calling it out because it needs to change. Um, you know, toxic masculinity, macho culture, they're so prevalent. And I think especially in Ireland, it's, it's, it's very prevalent. 
Um, and it, we need to call it out because it needs to change. It's not right that women don't feel safe walking home or, you know, simply existing and that they have to spend every day of their lives being sexual, sexualized and objectified. That's not right. Um, and we all need to call it out. So I think that's, um, I suppose I speak for you as well, Eric, when I appeal to everyone who listens to this to play your part in making sure that, you know, um, no one has to experience this again. And the unfortunate thing is that, you know, women will, will experience this unless we, we all play our part in acting up and, uh, and fixing the situation. Yeah, that was so well said. You said it all perfectly there. And I guess the last point I have to say, speaking to the discomfort that a lot of women feel, uh, that actually... Uh, heard from one of my friends that I spoke to recently that I think is very important for us males to consider is the fact that, you know, no, like women feeling uncomfortable in a room with males because they're being objectified or sexualized, for instance, is something that women didn't choose. Just for the mere fact that you were, just because of the accident of birth of you being born a woman, you know, you have to walk into rooms and be objectified. You didn't choose this reality for yourself. It's something that's being opposed on you. And I think that's the, the sadder thing of it all. A lot of women might feel trapped in this culture, uh, chained down to the fact that they have to just embrace this uh, and go around, you know, knowing that men are going to look at them in particular ways that they'd rather men not look at. But this is, you know, how society has presented itself to them. Uh, and this culture needs to change, as you said, Luke, and we need to be a part of the changes, man. Definitely. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Politically Incorrectors. We really appreciate your support. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, review it, share it with your friend, whatever you do on your platform. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media at Political Incorrectors on most platforms. Uh, follow us to stay up to date for our next episode, which will be here very soon. Thank you for your support and we will see you soon again.